friends. Today we've got a great conversation for you with psychiatrist Kurt Thompson. I've been, this is a guy that I've heard about for years and uh, just never had the opportunity to talk with him. I really found this conversation great. I uh, really enjoyed the guy. I really enjoyed the uh, talk we had uh, afterwards just and before. And uh, that is before and after the recording. I think you're going to really enjoy his work. And it's been actually a great resource. I've been doing a series on mental health at my church and we've used at least two clips from this conversation and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, more of the stuff from his book works its way into the series going forward but uh, it's really helpful and I think you're going to enjoy this one a lot and um, yeah so here we go check it out all right friends welcome back the show today. It is my honor to be joined by Dr. Kurt Thompson. How are you, sir? Luke, uh, great, and it's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Yes, uh, I have been asked multiple times, hey, you know Dr. Thompson. You've had Kurt Thompson on the podcast before, and I've been shamed because I've been doing this podcast for almost a decade, and I've never had the honor to talk to you. So thank you for (laughs) removing the shame from my life. Goodness, wow. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pleased that we're able to do that. Yes. I'm, I'm yes. very, very pleased we're able to do that. Yeah, right on. Okay. I have uh, a friend of mine named Dr. Josh Graves from uh-huh. Nashville, Tennessee. Uh huh. And Josh told me about a conversation that you guys had. I think it was at Ian Cron's conference, Telemachus, down in Florida. Maybe, okay. maybe not. I don't know where it was. Okay. But he says this line that caused me to literally stop in the middle of a podcast and go, hold on, let's talk about that. That you uh-huh. said to him. And I don't know if okay. it's, like, this is kind of a, you know, a, a phone tag game. So there, there might have yeah. been something lost in communication. But the line was, yeah. hmm. everybody is looking for somebody who's looking for them. Mm-hmm. Does that sound remotely similar to something that you would think and or communicate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the common things that I have said over the years is that every baby comes into the world looking for someone looking for him or looking for okay. someone looking for her. Every yeah. every baby does. And that that never stops. Hmm. It it doesn't just begin at the beginning. It's a constant in our lives and it is uh evidenced in the neurobiology that we look at. It's evidenced in the pages of the Bible. It's all over the place, and um, it's a really big deal for us as human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that is a you thing. That is a quote that we can attribute <laughs> to you. Uh, and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feel free. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, you have a new book, The Deepest Place, and mm-hmm. you say that as a psychiatrist working with patients at the intersection of interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. talk about how you've seen the application of s- certain things. Um, but someone who straddles these two worlds of Christian spiritual formation and a psychiatrist, <laughs> it seems like that could be an interesting uh, balancing act. My father is a retired clinical psychologist and professor. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when he was growing up in Dallas, he switched mm. his undergraduate degree from Bible or from Bible to psychology. And mm-hmm. people at mm-hmm. his home church were aghast that he was mm-hmm. leaving mm-hmm. Christianity mm-hmm. to go to this other mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Did you find any of that ever growing up or 
early in your career or currently in your career where people felt like those were two disparate worlds that should never come together? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, I, I, I remember um, I, I remember relatives who were uh, when they I, 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 which was very odd. I, some relatives who were actually in the mental health profession, one in particular who was concerned that I might be interested in psychiatry. Uh, and again, it, it's not really all that surprising given kind of the nature of the world in which we've grown up in and kind of how, how we've lived for the last 500 years and particularly in the last 150 years in, in, in our, in our country with kind of everybody, you know, anything that has to do with the material world, uh, science kind of gets to be the, uh, authority in the room about that and everything else gets pushed to the margin. So, uh, anything that we think about that has to do with spirituality, um, if if you start to uh, measure things in a way that you know you can tangibly put in a test tube or with whatever, then somehow God doesn't have anything to do with that. And mm-hmm. so I think people become anxious uh, largely because they uh, don't have as much practice or connection to the real events that are taking place in the world about the progression of, of science and so forth. And, and I think that what, what's been beautiful uh, for this is this whole notion that when you actually read the Bible, uh, the Bible itself on the pages of the Bible, you find, first of all, that um, when you read the first two pages, the first thing that you see, if, you, if one were to ask, well, um, what is God like when you read the first two pages of the Bible? We, we see that, like, well, it, it, it doesn't so much begin to teach theology as, although it does do that, the first thing it shows us is that God is an artist. Mm-hmm. And what artists do, artists work with the material world. That's what they do. They work with the material world. And uh, when you get then to the first page of Paul's letters to the church at Rome, you read that from the beginning, people have known about God's nature and his power. How? Through the creation, through the material world. That's how we come to sense anything. The uh, Some who would consider him to be the, 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 the most important, one of the most important Catholic theologians of the 20th century, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, said, you know, first, before we think about what is true, you first actually have to have a sensory encounter with it. That mm-hmm. beauty precedes truth because, as it turns out, this is how our brains operate as well. First, I sense things, and only yeah. then do I make sense of what Makes I sense. sense. Yeah. All this comes together when it then comes to neuroscience and spiritual formation because... We, what, we, what we discover is that when we pay attention to the way the mind works in the material world, it, it teaches us about how the mind operates from a mechanical standpoint. The mechanics of the mind, we, you know, science can tell us things that are really helpful and important. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell us about meaning, but it tells us about mechanics. And once we have a sense of mechanics, uh, we find that we can begin to apply work that actually affects my sense of my relationship with God. Um, and so it's, uh, it, I, I tell people I don't deserve my life. I can't believe I get paid to do what I do, um, that I have been offered this opportunity to work in this world of formation that has to do with people's inner lives and the material world as we know it. And so that's a long-winded answer to your question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you you say in the book a quote that you 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 danced around here. Uh, you say to put it succinctly: first we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. Before we quote mm-hmm. think about the world, we are sensing what our bodies are taking in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the mechanics of what the material world through 
like and science itself can teach us about how we sense the world is a valuable mm-hmm. part of it. I liked how you mm-hmm. distinguish that though to say that the questions about meaning maybe will not be accurately found in the world of science. Mm-hmm. How do you think we can move past this sort of divorce mentality of uh, like an inferiority or an anxiety about science from the religious community and a mm-hmm. sense of um, uh, maybe less than appreciative attitude from the scientific community about what uh, those in the religious worlds can, can bring to the conversation? How can we move past that? Well, I, I think, Luke, you're asking a question that gets at the heart of, uh, you could ask this question about any fracture line. Yeah. How do we get past our political rancor? How do we get past our racial injustice? How do we get past? Yeah. And I, I would say that uh, the way that we do this is by being in the room with each other. Okay. And I quite literally mean that. I mean... Uh, there are some there's a fo- some folks called uh, the Colossian Forum that are doing some really wonderful work uh, in that uh, y- we find that when two people are able to be in the room together and I say to you, um, tell me what you're most afraid of. Tell me what tell me how this story is going to end uh, with you and me not being able to be friends. T- t- tell what, what's what are you afraid of and what do you and what do you long for? Hmm. Uh, and I, I would want to say to you, I mean, even if I didn't know you, I mean, like I might say, okay, if I, if I were honest, uh, and you're my, uh, you're my erstwhile enemy, I would say, uh, I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid that you're going to do this and this and this, and then this is going to happen to me and to my kids. And I'm, I'm fr- and, and if, and if we were to be honest, I would say, and then I'm, I'm going to be left with this deep internal sense of being alone and ashamed and, af- and, af- and afraid in the world. And interestingly enough, all you got to do is to turn back to the second and third page of the Bible and you say, oh, uh, it's not good for the man to be alone. Yeah. And shame is the is the main driving. It, it, it's, it's, it's the drivetrain of the third page of the Bible in Genesis chapter three. We still, yeah, it all it all goes back to that. Like as, as our as our friends at the Bible Project like to say, everything you need to know about human beings, you can read. You can discover by reading the first six chapters of Genesis. Everything you need to know. And. I would say that when we when we talk about these things, I would say, oh, I would want scientists and I would want people of faith to be in the room to be with one another. There, uh, there's a well-known philosopher of science, Michael Polanyi, who once said, I mean, this guy was a physical chemist before he was a philosopher. And if you know much about chemistry, you know that physical chemistry is, uh, if you're a physical chemist, you're, you're just a little smarter than God. <laughs> and I'm not really kidding. And well, I, okay, of course I am, but but you get the point. And sure. he he said, uh, and so it's a pretty trustworthy statement. He said, at the end of the day, there's no such thing as science. There are only scientists. And what he means by this is that we are. You know, it's very fashionable for us to say science tells us fill in the blank. Science actually doesn't tell us a thing. People tell us things. And it's the people who are scientists or the people who write for the science section of the New York Times who tell us things. And then if the question is like, am I, do I trust data? No, I don't trust data. I trust people who tell me about data. It's, the, it's you that I trust at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And when you, you and I get in the room together and we start to talk about what I'm afraid of and what I long for, that is the beginning of an opportunity for us to have reconciliation. Hmm. Now, this is, I mean, this is what, 
I mean, this is what God is trying to do from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, like, they're, like, having a hard day with the whole snake thing, and God comes into the garden, right? And God mm-hmm. comes, and he, asks, and, he asks, and he asks a serious question. You know, we, we read back through this, and it's easy for us to say, oh, this is all a big setup. He, like, he knows the answers to the questions and so forth. But, like, if you're, like, boots on the ground, God is trying to have a real conversation. Where mm-hmm. are you? And Eve and Adam do what we all do. Like, they run for cover, and they start blaming each other. And then the next thing you know, Cain is killing his brother. And this is what we get, uh, because this is who we are. Mm -hmm. uh, Because they're not willing to sit down and say, well, gosh, I'm actually afraid to answer your question. Hmm. Because I'm ashamed of what you're going to... I'm ashamed of what I've done. But but imagine, like, what what if Adam had said to God, okay, I get it. You got, you probably got to deal with her too, but I was asleep at the wheel. I didn't do my job. I did, like, I didn't get the snake out of the garden in time. This is my fault. Do with me what you will. Imagine. Like, you can imagine the Trinity, like, hanging around, looking at each other and saying, like, 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 we like this dude. Mm -hmm. Like, this guy's, like, owning his stuff. He's taking responsibility for what belongs to him. Yeah. He's willing to pay the price for the acts that he's committed. Uh, but that's not that's not what I do. Like I'm I'm always looking to blame people. Yeah, yeah. So we would prefer isolation and hiding than vulnerability, which would allow us to acknowledge the role that fear and shame play in the way that we're interacting with each other. And that's as you're saying. Every sort of conflict that we see in front of us from, from race to politics, also the sort of like um, science versus faith debate that we have in, in, in this sort of conversation. Uh, yeah, so we need to talk. We need to, we need to come out of hiding, get behind, get out from behind the things that we're hiding mm-hmm. behind mm-hmm. so that we can actually interact with one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah, helpful. But we can't, yeah, it, the, the hard part is, Luke, is that it's very difficult for us to do this on our own. It's very, Why? It's, uh, Why? Uh, if I'm mad at you and I only have, I, the only, the only, all I know about you is the story that I tell in my head. Even you're approaching me, even if you come to me with good motivation, uh, I'm going to perceive you're approaching, I, 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 just like Adam did, right? He did not perceive God to be coming to him to save him. Yeah. He no, perceived no, God coming to kill him. Sure. But that's, I mean, God was actually trying to come to save him. Right. I mean, this is what yeah, Jesus was doing. Yeah. Jesus is coming to save us and we kill him. And so you, you're coming to re- reconcile, but I already have a story in my head. Hmm. But what if there's somebody else in the room? What if there's somebody else in the room who is willing and able to, uh, I, like, I trust the third party in the room. Uh, I don't trust you, but I trust the third party in the room. And the third party in the room is looking at you and saying, Luke, man, so good to see you. Come on in. I'm like, I don't know what to do with all this, but I trust my friend, our, our friend, the, the, our friend Brian that we know in common. Sure. And so Brian serves as a bridge because I'm going to start to pay attention not so much to you. I'm going to pay attention to Brian paying attention to you. Mm-hmm. And this is helpful for me to have another party in the room that can help us do this work. I mean, we could talk forever today about sure. why, Trini- why Trinitarian theology is such a big deal when it comes to neurobiology, why it comes to interpersonal interactions. You're going to have to give me a little—I'm very curious about the answer. Go, please. About that? 
Yeah, I, I, I just need. Well, a little I mean, bit. like, like, so you get you get two people in the room. I mean, like, like, take a take a couple, right? Take a, a man and a woman who are head over heels in love with each other, and uh, they think that their relationship really is right next to heaven, right? It's it's just it's just beautiful, mm-hmm. and all you need is to throw a kid into this equation. And everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Sure. Because sure. suddenly each person's narcissistic feeding frenzy kind of just gets like pushed to the side of the road. Because now mom's paying a lot more attention to the newborn than she is to him. And you see where this goes. Yes, I do. And so when it comes to like deeply connected relationships, our capacity to allow ourselves to be loved in the presence of just one other person who... It's just a lot easier for me, you know, to conform you to my image mm-hmm. than it is for me to do that with two people. And then imagine that we've got four people in the room or the body of Jesus. Right. Yeah. I, I tell people, look, when I married my wife, at, you know, I, you know, yeah, I, 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 you know, looked like I wanted to marry Phyllis. And then at some point, I don't know, six days, weeks, months down, like you learn pretty quickly. Actually, I just wanted to marry me. Right. <laughs> I, I wanted I wanted to marry. I wanted I wanted yep. you to look like her. But I wanted, I, actually, it turns out there are just many places where I would rather be, I, I want, I, I, I want this to be conformed to my image, yeah. this relationship. But when you put a third party in the room, when you see that Jesus and the Father are loving each other in the context and through this relational dynamism of the Spirit, you find that it's only there in at least a three-member party does love truly get the opportunity to be sacrificial. Hmm. Otherwise, uh, I'll do for you what you need. You do for me what I need. We both get what we want. It's everything's cool. Nobody really has to make any sacrifices. It's entirely possible. Yeah, that's what it's what being in love is all about. I, like I don't, I'm not in love with, I'm not in love with a woman. I'm in love with the feeling that I have when I'm with her. Like I'm in love with the thing what I. What she experience. gives me. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we can I, 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 I don't know if this is what you wanted to talk about, but there no, we are. Well, I mean, I just I wasn't going to say no. Like you keep giving me good. We're going to have to talk about your book eventually. But like this is just fascinating. Um, wow, I need to probably get more time from you. Uh, yeah. OK, this is great. Um, wow. OK, let's transition to the book. Otherwise, okay. I'm going to okay. run out of all my time. OK, because honestly, I don't want to talk about what you want to talk about in the book. I don't want to. But the subject matter yeah. of the book is not something I want to talk about, but you are the third party that's making me want to talk about suffering because I don't want to talk about suffering. Mm. Um, mm. But you talk about, in the book, here's a quote to, to get this going. Uh, again, the book is The Deepest Place. The line is this, but many discover that their suffering has taken up residence in the deepest places of their souls. Like mm. many of us, they have adaptive mechanisms to survive in the world of their family of origin, which they carry on in their current relationships and so we go on we have to bury a lot of these suffering among other ways of responding but here's the line we discover that suffering has taken up residence in the deepest places of their souls Hmm. okay first question what is suffering before we talk about how it's taking up residence in our soul Mm -hmm. i know you differentiate Mm -hmm. suffering and pain could you give us a like Mm -hmm. a working definition for the conversation at hand yeah, this is this is not uh, unique to me. This is I, I think you can read the literature. But people who talk about this uh, for for many 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 decades, uh, well, millennia, we talk about mm-hmm. this. That uh, pain is the thing that we would say is some sensed distress of some kind, either physically or emotionally, that we mm-hmm. encounter right through injury, through whatever it is, some some kind of 
um, unpleasant encounter. Suffering is what uh, some would say. Suffering is is the measurement of our response to pain. Mm-hmm. It's how we respond. To, what do we do? What am I doing in my mind to it? How am I thinking about it? What's the story that I'm telling about it? But we also recognize that suffering is pain over time. Mm-hmm. The story that we tell about pain over time. Uh, we uh, and so it's 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 certainly it's the intensity of pain and the level of pain and so forth. But also over time, we talk about how uh, the way that the human mind is able to tell time, as far as we know, is unlike any other animal that we're aware of. Hmm. Um, so when, when even when people talk about how they recognize that animals are suffering, we don't actually have evidence that animals have the same experience of suffering that humans do because we don't have evidence that animals can do in their mind with time what we do with time. Mm-hmm. Animals can continue to be in a state of awareness that they're uncomfortable, but that's different than me uh, having low back pain or me having cancer or me having the pain of my divorce or me having the pain of my chronic illness and also being aware that tomorrow is coming and next week is coming and I can imagine a future in which this is not going to get any better. Yeah. And that becomes part of the cycle that adds to this anguish that we carry with us. You make this designation where suffering has to do with our perception of time and our mm-hmm. anticipation of the future. Can you mm-hmm. speak a little bit about anticipation of future? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, we humans, it appears, uh, are the only animals in the planet that actually uh, are perceptive of time in the way that we are. We think about and we have the sense, for instance, of a past. Like I have a sense of what I had for breakfast and I had a sense of where I was this day last week. And even my awareness of it as a fact is coupled with a felt sense of what it was like for me to be in my office meeting with that certain patient on last Thursday. Yeah. It's raining outside, all those things. I, 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 can, I can conjure a sense of that. And I have the felt sense of memory that, I, yeah, I'm back there last Thursday. And when I think about the future, where, I, you know, where I'm going to go on vacation this summer, all those kinds of things, I have a sense of that. What's significant is that as far as the brain is concerned, there is no such thing as the past or the future. Because even in my generating that sensation of the past or the future, it's all happening right now. Yeah. It's just yeah. happening right now. As far as, And my capacity to anticipate the future as a human being is one of the major roles that my brain plays. We say that one of the, th- one of the ways you can describe the brain is that it is one big anticipation machine. Everything I'm doing is an anticipation of the next thing. I walk across the floor, I'm anticipating that the floor is going to hold. Mm-hmm. I put my key in the ignition, I anticipate the car is going to turn on. I anticipate the conversation that we're going to have over lunch, and then it turns like sideways. And that is a problem, because I'm anticipating something very, very different. Equally, if I have a, you know, we like to say that part of what we do is, from a memory standpoint is that we remember our futures. My anticipation of the future is always based on a collected series of embedded neural networks that represent the memory of the encounters I've had thus far in my life. We only ever anticipate things that are echoes of things that we've already experienced, some forms of that. So we anticipate the future by remembering what we've experienced in the past? That's right. Wow. That's right. 
And so if I have a if I have a history of trauma, and my history of trauma also includes the story that I tell about that history, and if in the story that I tell, I'm pretty hard on myself and I'm pretty condemning of other people, if, if I'm just, just kind of like swimming in a pool of condemnation, I experience multiple micro moments of condemnation, of shame, over and over and over and over and over again. And if that's what I'm doing in my brain, if that's what I'm encoding, that becomes the only future I can anticipate when it comes to me thinking about what's going to happen with this thing that happened to me 10 years ago or what happened to me yesterday. Mm -hmm. And so it's not until I can actually have an encounter with someone else in the context of my remembering that thing that I tell a certain story about that I can begin to shift and change my my felt experience in the here and now about that event. And if I've never had, for instance, if no one has ever offered me any empathy about a thing that happened to me 10 years ago, and now you and I are talking and you're the, and you do, that novel experience is going to register with me like nothing else ever has. And my brain's looking for empathy all the time. It's looking for it. It doesn't know that it's looking for it, but it's looking. This is part of the every baby coming into the world looking for someone looking for him. Yeah. And if you give me that experience that is attached to and associated and neurally connected to me telling you the story of what happened to me 10 years ago, that neural encounter, that felt sensation of feeling seen, soothed, safe, secure, that becomes something that turns, begins to turn how I anticipate the future of my life in light of this trauma. Not just because somebody tells me, oh, Kurt, you don't have to worry about what happened. You're going to be fine. It's not that. It's because at some level we have re-encountered that experience, but given me, and my friend Terry Wardle likes to say, an episodic, a visceral, like an embodied experience that is categorically different than the experience that I've repeatedly run through my brain over and over again about the trauma that I've experienced. So suffering has taken up residence in the deepest part of our souls. And right. as we're anticipating the future, we're replaying how we weren't seen or soothed or felt safe and secure in the past. And so despair pops up because we expect that same story to be played out in the future. That's right. And as we say in the book, we, you know, these three categories, we suffer for three basic reasons. We suffer because of things that have genuinely happened to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we suffer mostly because of what we do to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we also suffer as a function of what it means for us to follow Jesus. Hmm. And so we have the Christian suffering following Jesus, which is taking up your cross. These are things that um, Christians are called to do. They have been for 2,000 years since, since Jesus appeared. Um, the things that we do to ourselves and things that happen mm -hmm. to us— mm -hmm. Um, okay, let's talk about um, the things that we do to ourselves. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about some of the sufferings. If someone's going, okay, how, how do I create um, suffering that's deeply resided in my soul because of what I've done to myself? What are some mm -hmm. questions they should be asking? Well, I mean, I'll just, I'll just give an example. I mean, I'm, I, in the last, only the last four to five years, perhaps, have I become aware of the ways in which as i think about my early years first couple of decades of my life and then you know into my mid and late 20s and 30s uh it's been very easy for me to repeatedly be really hard on 
the part of the, you know, the 23 year old Kurt. If you had only, you shouldn't have, you should have done this. You shouldn't have done that. Like we just like, we go back in our mind and we think like, what, like, look, think about regret. Think about like all the things that we like, if I'd only done this, if I'd only done that, that whole enterprise. And we have all kinds of stories in which we do this to ourselves, right? Even people who have been traumatized, things that have happened to them. They say, if I had only not gotten in the car that day, yeah. if I had only left the party, you know, when I should, and I knew better. And of course, you know, it's, we got this like revisionist history of who we think we were and so forth. But the bottom line is, is that we repeatedly tell stories to ourselves. And then we, in, in order to cope with those stories, we also enter into, you know, an infinite array of what we would call addictive behaviors. And with every act of addiction that is disintegrating, I am once again doing things to myself that only adds to this felt sense of I am not okay and I will only ever be not okay into the foreseeable future, which mm-hmm. is like compound interest on my suffering because of what I'm doing to myself. Mm-hmm. The coping mechanisms which become the addictive behaviors which cause us to disintegrate yeah. makes sense to me. I get that. Um, I don't get why I tell stories about myself where I didn't do what I should have, where I'm yeah. hard on myself, why I, at you know, 24 didn't know not to make this dumb decision about real estate, or I didn't know, I, I should have known better. Why do I, why do we uh, fall into that sort of thinking all the time? Yeah. Well, again, uh, I, I think, you know, we come by it quite honestly. Yeah. Uh, it's, not, it's not good for the man to be alone. Mm-hmm. And one of the first priorities of the snake, one page later in the Bible, was to make sure that he's only talking to the woman. He doesn't say, "Hey, Adam, let, let's have let's have a three." He doesn't say, "Hey, let's wait until God, the wind of God, comes walking in the cool of the evening, and the four of us will have a conversation." Yeah, right. And, and it's not it's not that like that's dangerous. It is not good for us to be alone, and so we're alone a lot and. As soon as trauma happens, we, you know, for us to engage it, typically we're left alone with that. And the healing of trauma is not primarily about me, Kurt, as an individual finding a solution. It is about Luke coming to find me. It is about someone else coming to be present with me. When I'm left alone, however, uh, I'm left alone with these emotional states that are so overwhelming and so unpleasant. Mm-hmm. But if I'm by myself, I don't, you know, the only thing I can do is to do something to escape the emotional state that I have, the state of shame, the state of fear. And one of the odd things about... Can, can what I interrupt? We, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. You said we can only cope. We can only, uh, like, escape. Why can't I find, like, healing on my own? How, how come I, I can't fix it by myself? You know, I mean, this is a quote. The, 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 here, here we we um, run up against. Uh, that, that, it's a question that would be similar to like, why can't I fly, like a bird can? <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, it's, it's we would say like, well, uh, like like we are designed physiologically in such a way that like like I like I don't I don't got I don't got what it takes to fly on my okay. own. Okay. Right. Why can't why don't why don't why don't men have babies? Why don't males have babies? Like it, you were not, we're not built to do it, right? And like, it's not good for man to be alone. Okay, that's a good okay? answer. I mean, like, and 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 we humans, 
And, but we could, we could talk forever today about like why it is, you know, we are traumatized in isolation, which is evil's intention. And part of our response to having been traumatized in isolation is that trauma shatters my capacity to perceive that what I actually need for healing is connection with other people. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I perceive uh, that I don't perceive that is because trauma actually takes place in the context of intimate relationships. Yeah. And what that means is that intimacy becomes a dangerous thing for me. So I don't think to go for help. Shame does not have me turning toward you. It literally physiologically has me turning away from you, which means mm-hmm. I'm left on my own. And one of the things that I can do, interestingly enough, one of the things that I can do to reduce my felt sense of distress is to think cognitively. I can have thoughts about why I can't do this, why I didn't do this. I, like, I, I wander down the path of a cognitive ruminative pathway. Mm-hmm. It is completely unhelpful. But what it does is that it does reduce the felt sense of me being alone with the emotional state. Even if it's even if it's a minor reduction, it's the best I can do when left on my own. Now, I have all kinds of ways of doing this. I ruminate about it. I can do lines of cocaine. I can look on my phone. I can go look at porn and masturbate. I can, like, there's a range of different things that I can do, all of which, though are functions of what I'm doing by myself in the world. But when I'm doing, for my church listening, this is, I'm not actually doing this, but when I'm doing a line of cocaine, when I am ruminating or when I'm looking at my phone, all these are pseudo attempts to actually leave isolation. And I feel like I'm tricking myself and feeling like I'm leaving isolation, but I'm actually just going further into that hole. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is that we're not trying to leave isolation in those moments. What we're trying to do is, as quickly as possible, reduce our distress. Reduce distress. Okay. Right. I mean, when the human brain is left by itself, when it functions in isolation, Mm -hmm. it will do whatever it can to reduce distress as expeditiously as possible. Uh-huh. If I uh, when when and and so I can reduce distress quickly, mm-hmm. but it's not effective over time. If I am really anxious about a test that I want to, I have to take tomorrow, and I haven't studied, and I don't, and I'm all anxious about it. You know, one of the ways that I can reduce my distress, I just go play video games, and pretty quickly, I'm not thinking about the test. Like I'm, I'm, I feel better because I'm not thinking about yeah. the test. Uh, it reduces it pr- tomorrow. I pay a steep price. Sure. But if my friend Luke is also studying for this test, and I say, "Dude, like, I like, I don't know what I don't know what the heck I'm doing on this. Can can we study together?" Now that's going to take longer, and I don't actually like the idea of having to like face the music of the things that I haven't learned yet about things that are going to be on the test. But it is something that enables me to be in a better place tomorrow. But primarily because I'm connected to somebody else. Wow, you tell a story about uh, Cheyenne. I think I'm saying their name right. Cheney. Um, yes. Yeah. It, it would spell weird. You know, that's my yeah. bad for not. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Say, yeah. How do you, okay. So this person um, had yeah. this experience uh, where yeah. they find healing in this room and you connect what they find in this sort of, maybe there's eight people in the room who are communicating mm-hmm. the message that we are so pleased to see you and to be with you. We know your pain and the shame of the things that's happened to you and those things that you've done to yourself. This communicate community that expresses love you tie it to a unique word which many of us wouldn't associate with what's happening in that moment and that word is glory 
How mm-hmm. is glory experienced in those sort of moments where people move out of isolation into community? Mm-hmm. So the biblical notion of glory, the English word glory, if you look at all the Hebrew way, the Hebrew uses of it, um, there are it, it, there are multiple dimensions of it, mm-hmm. and the Gospel of John is a particular expression of this notion mm-hmm. of glory. Yeah, it's in the opening chapter. It's in the the farewell discourses of chapters 13 through 16. And when uh, I I found the work of Leslie Newbegin to be really helpful here with this, and again, this Catholic theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar, this notion that the the glory that John's talking about, the glory of a son of the Father, this love between the Father and the Son mediated through the Spirit, is this sense that C.S. Lewis also references in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, this notion that a significant element of what it means for God to be in his glory is for him to be himself. And being himself is to be in the room and to say to you, Luke, I can't believe I get to be your dad. Hmm. I cannot believe I get to be here with you. And you can imagine, like, like this is the, 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 this is Jesus at his baptism. This is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son. Holy Mm -hmm. freaking cow. Can you believe, like, it's this dude. This is the guy. Can you believe, like, you walk into a party, and the host of the party says, like, Luke, you are here. Like, everybody. It's my friend Luke. I'm just going to introduce him right now in front of everybody, but, like, everybody's going to get to meet him individually. And then you're like, oh, I'm here to the party. It's nice. Thanks. Right. And then before he comes and finds you, and he starts to introduce you to people, and he's like, I can't tell you guys how much I love this guy. At first, like, it starts to feel like it's uncomfortable. Yeah. But this is the glory, this notion that the Holy Trinitarian God is longing for us to enter into their life. And they can't wait for us to be there, but they are they need us to be willing to be receptive to how much glory they want to give to us, to share with us. This notion of, oh my gosh, I am so glad you're in the room. And the thing is, Luke, it's really quite difficult for me to imagine knowing the things that I know about myself that God is going to want to be in the room with me under those conditions. Hmm. We just don't have a remembered template for this. Hmm. Which is why sitting in the texts of Scripture is such a big deal for us to become connected to this Jesus that we read about who like you know Mark chapter 5 he gets out of the boat he's going to like talk to the you know to the priest to to raise the priest's daughter to heal her and this woman who's got a bleeding dyscrasia right Mm -hmm. she's she's got a plan she's got a plan for her healing it's called you know it's it's commando healing I'm gonna get in get the job done get out I'm just gonna touch the hem of his garment and I'm just go on my way and he stops the crowd he stops the crowd, and you're th- and she's thinking like this is this is not going the way it was supposed to go, mm-hmm. because for her, her biggest problem was not her bleeding. Her biggest problem was the shame that she carried, culturally, familially, mm-hmm. because of it. And Jesus basically is going to glorify her. Mm-hmm. He calls her daughter, all the things. And so when Cheney, in the middle of this group, is naming her shame. 
It's in that space where when people come to her and say, it's in this moment, we've been waiting for this moment to be with you. We're not waiting for the moments when you can tell us all the things about your life where you have all your crap together. We were waiting for this moment. Mm -hmm. And it's in this moment that we want you to know that we're not leaving the room. And every single one of us, like, and, and it's in our deepest places where these things about us hide out, mm-hmm. where, we, where we suffer, and we suffer largely because we keep these things in rooms that the doors are closed and locked because we have had to practice keeping them there because we're worried that people are going to see it. And when they do, they're going to leave. Mm-hmm. Wow. I see how these suffering this suffering resides in our soul. It keeps us isolated. It keeps shame having the biggest voice in our ear instead of the glorious message that I've I've seen you, I've known you, I've loved you. Hmm. Uh, I see how these stories just create a template for us to imagine the future, which leads to despair. If I've mm-hmm. had these. Uh, unlamented and ungrieved losses, then in the future, all I'm expecting is to have my version of my own pain in the past replayed again in the future. Uh, Can you speak about how suffering is connected to anxiety, how our pain and suffering leads to the anxiety which many of us carry? Well, one of the things that we tell people is that anxiety, uh, you know, it's a word that we use that uh, to describe a physiologic response Mm-hmm. and a cognitive response collectively that at the end of the day, even though, because science does not peddle in this, in, in, in metaphysics, uh, we would still say that if you're talking about the meaning of anxiety, we would say, once again, you're looking at the second page of the Bible. That anxiety is ultimately about my terror of being left alone. Hmm. It's always ultimately about that. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what we talk about. At the end of the day, it's about what's going to happen to me when I'm left in the middle of my distress by myself with nobody coming to find me. Mm-hmm. And what our wounds, our pain does is that it evokes within me the sense, not just that I have pain, but that I'm going to be left alone with it. Mm-hmm. And in my anxiety, you know, I, I mean, one of the other things that we do with our with our suffering is that, you know, I, we, one of the first things I do is like, I'm, I'm comparing mine to yours. Uh, just last yeah. week, I, I was yeah. at a place called Hope Heals Camp. Our friends, Jay and Catherine Wolf that run this camp in Alabama for three weeks that is designed for people and their families with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very easy. You know, so there are three, you know, 200 volunteers or 300 campers, and it's an amazing piece of heaven on earth mm-hmm. and it's but but you go and it's like it it's not hard to see how it is that one could easily say oh because i don't have that condition my suffering doesn't really matter my right. mine's not nearly that bad so sure. one of the first things that we do is like i bury my pain by just simply comparing myself to other people mm-hmm. or i bury my pain by thinking well somehow so i've already i told luke i told you about this last week and so like Somehow, now that you know, I shouldn't, like, I don't want to keep complaining about it. Mm-hmm. Because I know that you know, and so why do I need to talk about that? And in so doing, I'm actually defying what my brain is looking for, which is I need to keep talking about this as long as I need to keep talking about this. And hmm. in the talking, in the talking, 
I mean, if, if you're able to say, yeah, this is really difficult. When I feel empathy over and over and over and over again, it lets me know that I'm not by myself, which gives me the courage to do whatever the things are that I need to be doing. And sometimes, you know, if, if, if I have a condition for which there isn't a cure, uh, my, the most important thing I'm going to be wanting to do is to just make sure that as frequently as I can, I'm maintaining contact with the people who I want to allow to love me. That's the most important thing I can do. And as I do that, it transforms my interpretation of and the story that I'm telling about the pain that I'm experiencing. Hmm. Instead of it being about the pain, it now becomes about, oh my gosh, I've never been loved like this before. To have a group of people surround me who continue to say, like, yeah, I know, we'll be back next week to talk about this. And of course, there's the part of me that is just sure that you're going to get, like, at what point are you going to get tired of listening to me talk about this? And you're just like, Kurt, can, can you please, like, okay, we've heard it. We've heard it, like, 17 times now. Can't we be done with this? And, uh, you know, we, we, I tell people, why did the Hebrews need to write 150 psalms? Like, why not just five? Okay, ten, maybe. Like, why can't, like, like there just, there just aren't that many things to say. <laughs> but apparently, they believe that there are a lot of things to say, and in fact, there are a number of things that we just need to say over and over and over and over again, which is how the Bible is designed to be read. The Psalms are des- the Psalms of Lament are designed to be read over and over and over and over again in order for our shame and our trauma to be resolved, not because my pain goes away, but because increasingly I become aware of the presence of others who are loving me in the very face of my pain. Mm-hmm. Suffering tells me that uh, I'm going to end up alone, and anxiety mm. runs wild with that, or anxiety tells me that message. I'm going to be mm-hmm. alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The empathy I receive from others when they express solidarity with me, to listen, mm-hmm. to be supportive, mm-hmm. even if they don't solve the problem, which most problems mm-hmm. can't be solved, mm-hmm. but they're empathetic. Mm-hmm. It creates a new template for me to see the future through. Right. And does that somehow remove the way... Suffering resides in the deepest parts of my soul because love is replacing that? Mm-hmm. Eventually. But, you know, it's like, well, when, you know, when we were uh, in elementary school and we were learning our multiplication tables, um, did you, did, I mean, I, I, well, I'll speak for myself that, like, the first time I heard that three times two is six, I didn't immediately, with that one, upon one hearing, like, have it cold. No, No, like I'm like, it's flashcards over and over and over. Like we practice, 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 practice. Like this is how we do anything with anything that we want to master. And so if I want to, one of the primary things that we do in these confessional communities, when when there is a moment of, uh, uh, you know, great grace where the spirit is clearly in the room and someone is being plainly having a felt sense of being loved by the other people in the room, we will uh, pause the process and we will just wait and we will draw people's attention to what's happening in the room. And for whoever it is and for all the people who are involved, we will then say, we want you to mark this moment. And when we're done here with our time today, I want you to journal about this moment. I want you to write about this moment. And tomorrow, at least three times tomorrow, I want you to take about three minutes and I want you to replay this moment in your mind. 
hmm. sitting at your desk, in your kitchen, before you go to bed at night. I want you to practice immersing yourself in this because this is how we are formed around anything. I am most powerfully formed by entering into the practice of allowing myself to be loved. The way that I do that is to remember the moments in which that's actually happened. And if, because if I don't end up, if I don't feel it in my chest, if I don't have it in my body, if I'm not remembering it in my physicality, it has not yet become fully real to me. It's almost as if you're replacing the negative ruminations or ruminations just generally are negative with this sort of like rehearsing of this very positive, empathetic moment as a way to say this isn't the final word. This isn't the most important word of ruminations or anxiety, but of I'm loved and seen and accepted. Exactly. I mean, you know, one one wonders like, well, how many times? I mean, like you, we re, so so but it's but it's significant. This kind of practice is necessary. But we also have to remember what the gospels tell us plainly. I mean, like these cats lived with the king for 3 years, eating, drinking, sleeping, having fights with each other the whole 9 yards. And at the at the ascension in Luke's gospel, we read but some doubted. Yep. Yep. And I mean, like, dude, if if these are people who were with him and and they like were having trouble, hearing from a pulpit that Jesus loves me, like, it won't be enough. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to have an ongoing embodied experience with other members of his body. Who are, if we take St. Paul, if we take the, the, the text seriously, that like we are the body of Jesus, that means that I, I'm going to have to remember, I have a good friend, I mentioned my good friend Terry Wardle, who's about 10 years my senior, and uh, uh, in many respects, he has become an older brother for me in ways that I didn't have. And... I can't tell you the number of times that one of the first times that he and I were connecting, I was just not, I was not in an easy place. And he and I were meeting at a hotel and he said, yeah, I'll meet you at the, at the restaurant. We're meeting at a restaurant in the hotel. I come down to the lot. I come, I, the, the, and the hotel doors open and Terry is sitting in a chair waiting for me. He's looking for me. That moment, I have replayed hundreds of times. Because I have a part of me. There is a there is a part of me that has been around for as long as I can remember. Uh, I, I mentioned this in the book that, like, that believes he is not wantable, hmm. and I have to like that part is at war with the rest of me, hmm. and so remembering. Not just in the abstract that my friend Terry likes me, but remembering stepping off out of the elevator. You can imagine. Can you imagine how many times does Mary Magdalene remember in the garden on Easter Sunday hearing her name called? She turns and it's the king. That's what changes us. First we sense. And only later do we make sense of what we sense. 
And if we aren't practicing having encounters of these kinds of sensations, it won't matter what we know, like we know that two times two is four. Sure. Wow. That's beautiful. Uh, thank you for sharing that story with me. Um, uh, the subject matter of this book has been meaningful to me, on, uh, meaningful to me in a very personal way, and I'm very grateful for it. And uh, mm. I'm just mm. deeply honored that you would share um, your time with me. So thank you so much, Luke. I it it's uh, I I said earlier I, I don't deserve my life, and I um like this conversation is one more uh, example of that. I, it's just it's been really lovely to um, I mean. Who gets to do this? I but you've you like y'all are doing a lot of work to produce it and make it happen, and I'm just really grateful. And because like you know your your listeners are going to hear this conversation, but like they're not aware of like all the stuff you got to do to make this thing happen and so forth and so on. It's like you know nobody wants to talk to Tom Brady about training camp. They just they just they want to just talk about the you know the last yeah. two, the two minute drive. Like you know what I mean. Yeah. So I'm just yeah. I'm just really grateful for all the work that you're doing to make it possible. It's just really really grateful. Well, that's uh, very kind of you to say, and I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah. uh, the new book, The Deepest Place, uh, wh- when is the release date? Uh, I believe it's, I think, the 29th of August. I think the 29th is a Tuesday, so I think that's the date. It's official release date. You can pre-order it. Um, pre-order it, yeah. Yeah, you can pre-order it. Uh, at my, I've, the website, KurtThompsonMD.com. Um, you can get it there. Uh, you can get it on Amazon uh, or on Zondervan's website as well. Yep. Well, Congratulations on the new book, and uh, thanks. thanks again for the time. You're welcome. Pleasure.